It's good to be here in God's house to worship with you. And I want to just get started with a, a illustration. Uh, about probably 10 or 12 years ago, uh, Susan and I were, uh, uh, I think it was on a Saturday, we were leaving our house. We, we are on North Tarrant or Shiver there, and we crossed the, the Beach Street. And uh, there's, there's a lot of these uh, green belts that kind of run through the area out there. And uh, we looked off to our right, right across from Lone Star Elementary, there's a green belt there. And I noticed a a peach tree that was uh, up on the bank of that green belt. It had probably been there for, you know, who knows how long from a previous uh, farmer or farmhouse that was out there before all that was developed. And on that peach tree was some big, beautiful peaches. And this was late May, early June. Uh, so pretty early for peaches. And so, uh, you know, I thought, I'm just going to go check those out. You know, they're out in the middle of the, the green belt. They're not on anybody's property. So we pulled over and I uh, walked down through the, through the little creek bottom and came back up on the other side. And uh, the, they, they had several really nice, big, ripe peaches on it. And half of the tree, though, however, had a little bit of a different leaf on it and had little bitty green peaches. And immediately, I kind of knew what was going on there because I, I kind of grew up. Uh, my, my dad and, and grandfather grew peaches, and granddad uh, was down on, a, uh, on the Colorado River where it was a big pecan uh, growing area. And uh, it reminded me of, of another picture of when I was at May, one of my deacons asked me to come out and there was a huge pecan tree that was uh, aging and starting to die. And this pecan tree, it was so big, you couldn't reach around the base of it. And uh, yet there was a split about eight foot where it wide off. And this pecan tree is about a hundred foot tall. And half of this pecan tree produced native pecans. Now, if any of y'all from Texas, you know what I'm talking about there. A native pecan is about that big and it's so hard to crack open that you burn more calories cracking it open than what you get out of that pecan. And, and, but the other half had these huge paper shell pecans. So half of the tree was a native pecan tree, and half of it was paper shell pecan tree. And people that didn't grow up in the country are like, what in the world are you talking about? How can a tree grow half of this kind of fruit and half of that kind of fruit? Well, what would happen, especially among farmers and ranchers back in that day, is uh, they might have a neighbor who had an improved species of a fruit tree. They might have an, an improved peach uh, that they had bought that tree from somewhere. And what they would do is they would carefully take one branch off of that tree, a small branch. Usually, you know, it wouldn't be maybe even bigger than three-eighths or, or a half of an inch. And they would carefully cut that branch in a V-shape. And then they would come to an established tree that they had planted or had been there for years, and they would find a branch that was about the same size, and they would carefully cut the opposite of that V-shape in that tree. And they would slide those two together, and they would wrap it with usually wax or paraffin of some type, and they would wrap it with burlap. Uh, back in that day, they probably used twine that was used on baling hay or even, even uh, uh, baling wire to, to put that on there. And then, as they cared for that tree, as they watered and, and gave that tree nutrients, what would begin to happen is those two would begin to grow together. The fibers from that tree would begin to, to grow into the fibers of that branch, giving it life. And the fibers of that branch would begin to take root, so to speak, would reach into that tree. And so, after a period of time, depending on the health of that, that union there, they would be able to take off that uh, where the connection was, be able to take off that burlap. And, and at first, you'd be able to see where the two were connected. But over time, 
you'd get to where you could not even tell. That pecan tree out there in May, as I said, was over 100 years old, and you, you would never be able to tell where the native pecan tree began, so to speak, or ended, and, and where the, the improved branch that was grafted onto it began. They had become united. They had, 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 had the fibers had so intertwined that they were connected and they were together. For me, that is one of the best pictures, and I think a pretty good illustration for where we are in John chapter 15. Today, Jesus is a he tells this, he uses the metaphor of the vine and the branches to communicate truth to his disciples. Now, let me reset the stage and remind you where we are. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John. We're in this third major section of the Gospel of John that goes from John 13 through John chapter 18, verse 1. This section all takes place the last night of Jesus' life. From the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet and they had the Lord's Supper together until he is arrested uh, the next morning in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, we're only talking about maybe a 12-hour period here. And so, these truly are Jesus' last words to his disciples before he is arrested and taken off to be prosecuted and crucified the next day. So, we're actually only, uh, even though this is about half the gospel of John starting in John 13 to the end, we're at the very end of Jesus' life on this earth. And uh, so, Jesus is, is giving the disciples his last words. Now, even more uh, specific we looked at John chapter 14 the last three weeks. All of that discussion, those last words of Jesus, took place while they were still in the upper room. The last phrase that we read last week was this phrase at the end of John 14 where he says, get up, let's leave this place. So, that's a pretty good picture that Jesus' disciples, they got up. Judas had already left. He'd gone to betray Christ, and they were walking out of the gate of Jerusalem headed toward the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Historians will tell you that more than likely, Jesus, as they were walking out through the, the entrance of Jerusalem, whichever gate they were using, there was a vineyard that would have been outside the gate there. And so, naturally, Jesus, as he's teaching his disciples, turns to something that they knew, something that they could see, and he teaches them from that. Now, these are the words of Jesus in John 15, 1 through 8. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You're already clean because the word I have spoken to you, remain in me and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches." The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples." Now, this is a text that is very familiar to me. I have preached it in the past many times. I've used this, just the, the metaphor as an illustration for other sermons. One of the struggles I have with this text is I had first memorized John 15 in the New American Standard, and then I was asked to uh, memorize it when I was preaching through first uh, uh, using the New King James Version. And so, every time I read this text, I have a hard time 
remembering which words are which. I've got to stick to today we're using the, the, the Christian Standard Bible, and I'm going to talk about a couple words that appear differently depending on which one of those translations you're using and maybe give you some indication of why. But I want to begin at the, uh, there, right there in verse 1, and, and we're going to break this text down with three big truths that come out of it. The first one just comes straight out of John 15.1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. A little bit of extra here for you. This is the seventh and last of the, the I am statements by Jesus. This is one of those many I am statements that we've talked about that has a predicate to it. So, just like Jesus said, I am the light of the world, or I am the bread of life. Here, Jesus says, I am the vine. This is the only one of those I am statements that Jesus includes two predicates. And that's interesting in this context because here he not only says, I am the vine, but my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. And so you have two predicates following that I am statement. It, it's not surprising because what we have just seen in John chapter 14 is Jesus' teaching on the union between he and the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see this intimate connection between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit where, where Jesus refers to himself uh, in, in first person like the Spirit when he says the Spirit's going to come to you and he's going to be in you. And then Jesus also says, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to be in you. And then he says, the Father and I are one. And so we spent some time last week talking about the this, this image of the Trinity, the fact that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God. And, and we cannot understand, we cannot easily grasp that, but nor can we divide that out. And so, uh, I want you to see that there, that, that you have this connection uh, within that I am statement. I am the vine and my Father, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener or the vine dresser. Now, why does he use the word true vine? And that's one of the first things that stood out to me in this text. He didn't just say, I am the vine. He said, I am the true vine. There is some theological questions about this text. When, when he uses that word and he says, I'm the true vine, the question is whether or not he's talking about how he is replacing the nation of Israel as the true connection to the heavenly father or, or whether he is he's connecting with this language to a Greek Gnostic idea that was going around by the time that John wrote his gospel. I don't think it, it matters for certainty either one, but I will point out that oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, we see Israel referred to as a vine. You see it in Hosea chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 5, Ezekiel chapter 15, Jeremiah chapter 2, even in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 80, uh, you see a passage, Psalm 80 verse 8 through 18, a passage where Israel is referred to as you know, God's vineyard, or God is, uh, they're the vine and God is the vine dresser who's caring for them. And so, I believe there is a sense in this passage as Jesus speaks to his disciples that he's calling them to take their focus off of the religion that they grew up with and put their focus on a relationship with the living God. And I think that the context of all of John 14 through 16 bears that out, but certainly the context right here in this metaphor bears that out. Far too often we get focused on the religion of Christianity and we miss, we miss the relationship to which we've been called. Now, that's a theme you hear me mention a lot 
because it's true, even beginning in Genesis, all through the Old Testament, God was never calling his people to go through a series of motions. And in fact, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll see God say, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your festivals because you go about those things without focusing on me. And so they're, they're, they're just going through the motions for you. And so when he speaks here of I am the true vine, I believe that he's calling his disciples to take their eyes off of all of the things that could distract them and to put their eyes on him, to focus on Jesus as the center, the focus of their, their faith. Second here, uh, notice that this relationship between the vine and the vine dresser, the father and the son, the vine and the gardener, even though he's going to describe the father with a little bit of a different role, there's still this connection to the I am. <laughs> they are both God. And though he here is, in this metaphor, is becoming the life source for us as the branches, and we must, be we must be connected to Christ to be connected to the life source, that we'll have life in us, that that life will produce fruit the Father also still serves a role who is at work in our life. And the work that he mentions here of the Father, you see in verse 2, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. Let me put something out on the table right here, because especially when we get down to verses 6 through 8, one of the things that, that I have struggled with here, and oftentimes we struggle with, is this question, is he talking about people that are going to hell? He says that the branch is going to be set aside, it's going to wither, it's going to die, and they're going to throw it in the fire. In this context, I do not believe that that is the correct interpretation of this passage. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to those who he's calling branches who have been connected to him at some point and have had life. And so, what does that mean for us? Well, it makes it a little bit scary. Because what happens, he says, is there, there comes a time where the branch has become separated from the vine to such an extent that it has become worthless in the Father's vineyard. That it no longer produces or bears fruit, it withers and it dies and he sets it aside. Now, this is not the only passage of Scripture, even in the New Testament, that gives us that kind of warning. That does not mean that one who has truly put their faith and trust in Christ, who was once one of his children or once was a branch connected to the vine, is going to be cast into the fires of hell. But what it does indicate is that if, if you and I at some point in our life, so refuse to stay connected to Christ, we're going to see a withering and dying, and our spiritual life is going to dry up. We're going to begin to look like we were never alive in the first place. And I believe that I've seen this happen during my ministry time and again, where there were those who walked away from the faith, and God set them aside. In another place, Paul talks about, he warns us not to harden your heart as you continue to harden your heart against God. You continue to walk in sin and you're, you refuse to repent. Your heart becomes hardened until you become separated from God. At that point, you will no longer be productive for the kingdom, and God will set you aside. It's no different than what Jesus told the seven churches in Revelation. Churches, 
those of his kingdom who he says, I will remove your lampstand if you continue down the, the path that you're on. So there's a warning here for us. The Father will clean and prune and remove those who are unwilling to repent. But for those who are willing to repent, he makes us more productive. I remember as a, as a young man, and those of you that maybe have watched my story online, I, I shared a little bit of how uh, I came to faith at, at New Hope Baptist Church as a junior high kid, and that church went through a rough time right after that. The pastor had left, the youth minister had left, and uh, I, I felt betrayed, those whom I loved, those who led me to the Lord. Uh, one of them had gotten fired, actually, and so uh, we, my family stepped away from church for a couple years, and then as a ninth grade boy, I had a friend that invited me to come visit his church, First Baptist Church Leander, and he actually invited me, and then at the football game, on the first Friday night football game, he introduced me to his pastor who was calling the game. He was the announcer up in the press box, and halftime, I, I got to meet him, and, and uh, you know, one of the best things about it, uh, this, this guy was a big old uh, uh, guy. He'd played tackle for a, a Division II school and, in college, and he was, uh, his name was Dennis. How, how much better does it get at that point, right? And so, I thought that that was meant to be. Uh, we went to that church the next Sunday, uh, went to Sunday school, went to Sunday morning. I went back to youth choir. Uh, yes, they had a youth choir. And uh, no, I could not sing, but I thought I could. So I went to youth choir and uh, joined in and enjoyed it. And besides, the church had a few pretty girls there and made it even better. And so the next Sunday morning, I, well, I told my mom that, that Sunday night, I said, next Sunday I'm joining. I don't care what you and Bobby do, my, my younger brother, but I'm joining. I joined that church and began to get plugged in, and God began to do a work in my life because, yeah, I was a mess. <laughs> I, you know, as a ninth grade boy, I had some garbage in my life, and it seemed like every Sunday morning or every Sunday night during the preaching, I, at, least, at least once on that Sunday, I'd come under conviction, and here I'd come down the aisle, and at first I'd go talk to the pastor and ask him to pray for me, and I'd confess him, or I got to where I'd just go to the altar. And I remember after going through this for what seemed like a couple months, uh, I went to the pastor, and I just didn't really know what was going on in my life, and, and he said, the Lord is pruning you. He's pulling out the weeds in your life to make you usable for him. Now, pruning doesn't always feel good. In fact, oftentimes it hurts. Sometimes God uses events in our life to prune us. Sometimes he has to do something to knock us down, to cut away our pride. There's all kinds of tools that God has in his toolkit that he can use to make us more productive. As long as we are connected to the vine and the Heavenly Father is working on us, we ought to count it a joy and a blessing that he's pruning us for his work. Now, the word, that the Greek word, and this happens in, in all four of the versions that I mentioned earlier, for prune or clean is the exact same Greek word. And they get used interchangeably here depending on how the translator saw the context. So when he says in verse 2 that he'll, it'll produce or, or that he prunes every branch, and then in verse 3 he looks at the disciples and he says, you're already clean. He's actually using the same word. You know, he, he could look at the disciples and say, you're already pruned <laughs> because of the, the, the word that I've been speaking to you. So notice how the pruning's taken taking place here. 
The pruning in the disciples' life is taking place as they sat under the teaching of God's Word, just like it was when I was in high school. As I sat under the the teaching of God's Word and opened my heart and asked God to do a work in me, He used His Word like a knife to begin to cut away the garbage so that I could become more useful to Him. Now, I've seen those. In fact, I've had at least a few people that have have quit attending uh, a particular church because they got tired of the difficult preaching. Well, let me tell you something. If you've got a problem with difficult preaching, it is usually not because of the preacher. It's usually because of what the Holy Spirit is doing as he's working to prune your spirit. God's Word can be sharp, and it can hurt. But if you don't find yourself being challenged, being pruned, being cleansed, being made more productive, more fruitful by the Word of God, I'm going to plead with you to examine your heart and ask, am I connected to the vine? If you can just sit through a a worship service where the the Word of God is being preached, I don't mean some lightweight gospel-ish thing or some some, uh, philosophical uh, uh, talk, but if God's Word is being preached, it's being, you're, it's being read in the worship service, it's being declared, and, and you're not being impacted. Examine yourself and ask God to go to work. There's none of us, not a single one of us, that are beyond the need of some cleansing and pruning in our lives to make us more productive. The Father will be at work to accomplish that task. Second, the key to pr- fruit production, to being a fruitful disciple, is abiding in Christ. Now, the word that's used here in the CSB is the word remain. I have a hard time getting away from the word abide because that's the way I memorize this text. It's the same thing. Jesus says, if you abide in me and I in you, you will produce much fruit. I want to I point something out here. There is only one command in this text. In these eight verses, there's a lot of descriptive things, but there's only one order. There's one command, and it's that first word there in verse 4, remain in me. Abide in me. The command given his disciples by Jesus for them to be productive in his kingdom is abide in him. Hear me out here and don't turn me off too quickly. The command is not tithe regularly. The command is not show up every time the the doors at the church are open. The command is not to have a checklist for your, your Bible app to make sure that you read at least one verse every day. That's not the command. Because that kind of religion can produce a false picture of a disciple. Oftentimes, we measure people by what we see on the outside. We say that, that oh, they're, they're, they're following Christ because they're faithful attenders, they're, they're generous givers. Those things ought to come out of being a faithful disciple, but here's the issue. Those can be faked, and a lot of people do fake it, and a lot of, a lot of times the enemy will use that to convince you that you're in the right relationship with Christ when you're not. See, the focus 
has to be on remaining in Christ, abiding in him. So, how do you abide? Almost the exact same list I just gave you. You abide in him by investing in his word and allowing his word to take root in your life. But it's not just for head knowledge. It's about a relationship. You, you abide in Christ by coming together with other believers to worship, to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs. You, you abide in Christ by coming together to a place of worship, not for the entertainment value or not to hear what tickles your ears or what you want, but so that you can focus on Jesus and abide in Christ. If Jesus is not the focus and the attention of, of the time of worship, and Jesus is not the focus and attention of, of the word being preached, flee that place. Because it's got to be about him, about the Lord. Our worship services, and, and I'm, I don't mean to offend because I understand the heart of many that use this term, but our worship services ought not be seeker sensitive, they ought to be savior sensitive. We ought to be more concerned about coming to a place of worship and connecting with the living Lord than we are about doing something that makes us or others around us feel good. And so, worship, prayer, spending time in God's Word, those are all things that sound like acts of religion, and they are if Jesus isn't the focus. And so, the, the issue is not always what you're doing in that way. The issue is the motive and the heart and how you're doing it. Those things can be faked by the enemy. How you're going to know, how you're going to know for sure is by what fruit comes out. And we'll get to that in a moment. Because spiritual fruit, I believe, true spiritual fruit is impossible to produce without abiding in Christ. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. You just said that you could fake a lot of this stuff. Yeah, you can. But I don't think attendance, giving, and a lot of those outward, how, how many quiet times you had this week or how many verses you read, the Pharisees memorized the Old Testament and there was no spiritual fruit. So, what would you say is spiritual fruit that truly is an indicator that you're abiding in Christ, that you're remaining in Him? I think Paul gives us the best list. I don't think that this is comprehensive, but I think that this is a pretty good idea for you. Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, I honestly don't believe that Satan, the enemy, will or can produce those in you. I think only the Spirit of God can produce those in you. It, uh, you can fake it in religion, but you come up against tough times and you're a turmoil in your heart. You're a turmoil on the inside. And the opposite is also true. You can come into the storm of life that seems overwhelming, like the death of a daughter. And in the midst of that, sense the very presence of God and know his peace. Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens when you're abiding in Christ, when you're remaining in him. I've seen with my own eyes men whose people in the community would say, 
Oh, he knows the Bible more than anybody else around here. He, he really is a good teacher of the Bible. He goes to church on a regular basis. He's known for the big gifts that he's given. And the guy was mean and angry and lacking joy. And the community knew that how he did his business was different than, than what he showed with his Bible study. There was a disconnect between the, the religious trappings of his life and the real spiritual fruit. I believe that when Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit, this is the kind of thing he's talking about. When you look into somebody's life and you see love beyond comprehension, They're, they love those who are unlovable. They're going through the most challenging, difficult time of their life, and there's a sense of peace and a sense of joy. I think of some of those godly saints who I've seen wither away as they died from some horrible, debilitating disease, maybe cancer, and yet they had on their countenance the Spirit of God. There was a joy and a peace that they knew. That is impossible to bear. That's impossible to produce without Christ. I want to take just a moment here to address something. Uh, the, the word that I am most familiar with in this text in John chapter 15 is the word bear fruit. The New International Version, the New American Standard Version, the New King James Version says that it is impossible to bear fruit. The CSB uses the word produce fruit. That's always, that's caused me a little bit of, of, a, of a conundrum this week because my my picture of this, as I understand it, is that a branch simply is connected to the vine and it puts the fruit on display, right? Now, the branch can't produce fruit unless it's connected to the vine. You, can, you cut that branch off and you set it out here by itself, it can't produce fruit. It, we won't be able to. And, and that word that is used in many translations to bear fruit gives us this image that the, the primary job of the branch is just to simply put the fruit on display. Well, our version this week, the CSB, uses the word produce fruit. And so it caused a little bit of a struggle for me. It, honestly, uh, either one of them is a, is a good translation. And there, I've probably in the past made too big of a distinction between producing and bearing truthfully in this text, it does not matter. Because Jesus says clearly in verse 5, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If the branch is not connected to the vine, it cannot and will not produce fruit, no matter how hard the branch tries. And here's one of the problems with our religion, and I'll move through this quickly. Sometimes we come up with all kinds of ways to try to produce fruit. When I was a young man in, in college at Howard Payne, one of the big movements among uh, churches across the nation was what was called the church growth movement. And you would go to a church growth conference and you would study marketing and how, how to market Jesus and how to market your church. And, and, and you looked into all kinds of marketing ideas. And then, then there were conventions with, with people who had, had grown a church and they're going to come teach everybody else how to grow a church. And so one of my struggles is you might have a guy that had grown a church in Illinois. He's going to come down here and people from... May, Texas, and Zephyr, and Blanket, they're going to go listen to him how to grow a church. Let me tell you, you can't do in May, Texas what you did in Chicago and expect results. 
we, we were looking everywhere for how do we grow. We as individual believers have done that. If I can just get more knowledge in my head, I'll be a better Christian. No, you won't, because knowledge doesn't make you a better Christian. If I could just spend more time doing this or doing that, here's the problem. A branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. You take that same branch off that peach tree that I was talking about, and you go out here and you lay it down on the ground, it will die. And even if you take a whole bunch of branches off that peach tree and you, you, you have a little branch convention over here and you put a whole bunch of branches together, they'll all die. And, and, and they can go over here and, and you could sit there with your consulting, uh, best consulting ideas and you could tell those branches and, and those branches would say, man, I'm going to soak up all the knowledge that I can so that I can be the best branch. They're still going to die. And, and, and maybe you're one of those branches that you're just looking at your life and you're not seeing the fruit that you, you want to have in your life. And so you just say, I'm going to try really, 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 really hard this time to produce fruit. That was one of my problems. When I was, I'd come down the aisle, I'd bow down at the altar and say, God, I messed up again this week. I'm going to try harder. Next week, I'd come down the aisle again. Lord, I did it again. I'm going to try harder. And I kept trying harder and harder and harder and harder until I finally figured out that no matter how hard I tried, to produce fruit, I couldn't. You can't struggle enough in your own flesh to produce spiritual fruit. There is a solution, though, and it's an absolute promise from God's Word. If you're connected to the vine, you will produce much fruit. If you're struggling in your life and you don't see the kind of fruit that you wish you had, connect to Jesus. If somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, you know, I'm just not a patient person, you know what I tell them? Then you're not connected to Jesus because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. You'll see patience begin to grow in you when you connect to the vine. It is not your job to work up and push out the fruit. It is your job to stay connected to Jesus. And when we do that, fruit will come. Lastly, and I'll move through this quickly, spiritual fruit is the evidence of spiritual life. If you want to look into somebody's life and, and, and ask the question, are they truly walking in a relationship with Christ, look for the fruit. Look for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, those things and those like that. Fruit production, you need to hear this. Fruit production does not make a person a believer. Okay? I'm not saying that you have to produce fruit to be a believer, but I am saying that if you believe and are connected and abiding to Christ, you will produce fruit. You hear that? So, if you look in your life and you have to ask, and, and you see that you haven't been responding in love within your marriage or within your, your friend group, or with your family, or your kids, and you're struggling with being patient, and you're, you know that you haven't been very kind lately, if you look in your life and you see that kind of evidence, there's two questions for you to ask. First one is this, am I truly a follower of Jesus Christ? Have I put my faith and trust in him? If you are, then have I been abiding in his word? Have I been resting in him? Has my focus of worship been about Jesus or has it been about me? Because if you are not seeing a growth in spiritual fruit in your life, 
I'm going to suggest that one of those two things is true. Either you are not abiding in Christ or you were never his child in the first place. And you need to deal with that, whichever it happens to be. Now, I'm going to plead with you in one other way. This is a picture of growth, so don't get discouraged. One of the things that I struggled through as a young man, I had, and I, I, I highlighted this guy this week. I gave honor to him, Dr. Frankie Rainey, who was a godly, godly man. He is a godly, godly man. He's still alive out in, in West Texas. He, uh, there was more than one occasion where I saw something like this happen. I'll just tell one quick story. I was at a, uh, the hospital one night. Our best friends, uh, Carrie and, and Leanne Camp, she was in labor. She was getting ready to have her baby. She had lost a child earlier, and she was getting ready to have a baby, and she was in intense pain. The baby was breached. Uh, they had taken her back to the, the delivery room, and we could hear her <laughs> screams in the hallway. Now, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. I went to a payphone. I know that ages me, okay? <laughs> and I put a quarter in there, and I called Dr. Rainey. I said, Dr. Rainey, uh, now Dr. Rainey was very close to us and the camps. I said, Dr. Rainey, Leanne is in labor and she's having a really hard time. Would you pray? Dr. Rainey said, that's why the Spirit of God woke me up at 1230 this morning and Sue and I have been praying. He was so intimately connected to the Spirit of God that the Spirit of God woke him up and he had already been praying for Leanne and did not know why. That challenged me. Lord, I want to be like Dr. Rainey. I want to have that kind of relationship with you that Dr. Rainey has. Why can't I? And why can't I have it now? I, I don't want to wait until I'm 50 years old to have that kind of relationship. I want to have that relationship now. And that's when the Lord quietly whispered in my ear, you abide in me and continue to grow, and you'll be like that one of these days. It doesn't happen overnight. You can't plant a, an acorn and expect it to be a 100-foot-tall oak tree the next day or the next week or the next month, no matter how much water you pour on that acorn. It takes time and abiding. So don't give up. As you walk through that relationship with Christ, don't give up. Don't short-circuit what he's doing, but simply trust him and abide in him. Our connection to Christ is the key to bearing fruit, not our self-effort. If we will root ourselves in Christ, in all of the ways that we've talked about, in worship, in Bible study, in prayer, if we will connect with him and focus on him and make it about him, then we'll produce much fruit. But apart from him, you're just faking it. 